Hear the word of the living God. This is Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68 is our text this morning. Matthew 26, 57 through 68, as we're continuing through the the passion of, of Christ as he heads towards the cross. Verse 57, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. And now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? This is the word of the living God. May he write its truths on our hearts today. Would you join me in prayer? Father, once again, we come in the name of Jesus, asking for continued grace to know him more. Matthew has been so helpful for us these past years as we've studied it verse by verse to to learn the person of Christ, to see his heart. And now, Lord, to see him facing this injustice, this mock trial, Lord, to see him mocked, and it, it, it challenges us, those who love him, Lord, and I pray it would also call us to look to him with such a heart of worship and admiration, with such a joy to serve him, and in such a way that we would be made like him. We trust you for this work today, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Just reading such a passage, if it doesn't do something to your heart, right? If it doesn't grab you, um, and that's going to be happening a lot these coming weeks as we can continue to look at at, at the, the, the road to the cross. We're, we're making our way step by step to the cross, and you look at injustice, and that's what's happening here, but I think by the end of the sermon you'll see there's a lot more than just that. Injustice does make us angry, right? I know it makes me angry when you when you look at things that uh, go on in the world today and you see uh, things that are just uh, 
wrong and, and truth is not valued. We live in that day, don't we? We live in a day where truth isn't uh, put on a pedestal. <laughs> Facts don't really matter in our culture, in our society. What is truth? We'll see a little later how Pilate asked that question. Truth is that which conforms to reality. So truth is actual actual reality, right? And, and if, if truth is reality, we don't have a right to just make up our own reality, but yet that's what's happening all around us. I think of a few things that, that happened even just recently. You don't have to look far. Just open the news or watch something, read something, see what's going on, open your social media, scroll through a few things, and you'll see it right in your face. I think of the other, like a week or two ago, there was this big report going out, New York Times and all this stuff, Israel with the war situation going on, which we need to keep praying for them there. Israel was bombed. They say Israel bombed a hospital in Gaza. Despite the massive evidence that, that it was actually a rocket from, from Hamas that was there. Oh, no, it wasn't. It was Israel. No, 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 no. It, it, we've got video. We've got like multiple videos and different angles and geolocations and all of this, this, these facts right in front of us. So it doesn't matter. It was them. And that's how much of the news comes across. That's how much of life comes across. Right? You, you, I, I saw something just scrolling the other day where, where there was this man with, with a voice much deeper than mine, <laughs> a James Earl Jones type of voice, right? And, and he was, was making a video of how hurt and offended he was because he wasn't called sir. Oh, excuse me. Because he was called sir, and he was wearing a dress, and he should have been called ma'am. And he was demanding that. And, and it's just you, you, you look at culture and society today, you're like, yeah, but you're not. And yet there's, there's this demand that it, that it doesn't matter what's true. It doesn't matter what reality is. We can somehow make it up. And we're, we're seeing aspects of this, not just in our culture, guys. This has been as long as sin has been. This confusion, this, this devaluing of truth and a love of lies has been around for a long, long time. This attitude that I'm convinced no matter how much the amount of truth comes at me, I will not be convinced otherwise. So much is based on feelings. And yet Jesus is the one who comes in John 14, 6 and says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so if Jesus himself personifies the truth and says, I am the truth, we better value the truth. As we look today, we're going to see a complete disregard for what's true. As Jesus has been arrested and now is going to be put on a mock trial. Five points this morning. The first is this. We're going to look at different scenes, different segments. One, following him at a distance. Verse 57. Let's go back through it again. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Now, as you read through the different Gospels, you'll see that this wasn't the first appearance of Jesus before a judge or, or an official on the night of his, of his betrayal and arrest. On that night and, and on the day of his crucifixion, Jesus actually stood in front of six different times, six different trials, if you will, before different judges. We'll see some of those as we, as we come up uh, into the further study of Matthew. 
But here Jesus comes to the home of Caiaphas, who was the official high priest. And sometimes we get confused because you'll read in other Gospels that he was brought to Annas. And Annas is, is, is also known as the high priest. And what happened, Annas was actually the legitimate high priest of the day. But Annas had been deposed by Rome. Rome kicked him out of office and installed Caiaphas, which was his son-in-law. And so Annas was actually the one pulling the strings behind the, 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 the curtain, if you will, through Caiaphas. Caiaphas was Rome's high priest, but Annas was still acting as the official high priest. But here now he's gone from, from the house of Annas. Now he's, he's at the home of Caiaphas. And Caiaphas had gathered a group of, of what's called the Sanhedrin in order to pass judgment on Jesus. The Sanhedrin was like the supreme court for the Jewish people. It was a religious body made up of religious leaders, but very, very political. Uh, think of middle medieval Roman Catholic Church where you had popes that were also kings and such like that. These were the days where the political and, and the religious was like totally mixed together. And so this was a, a religious body, but a very political body. There were 70 members of the Sanhedrin. 23 were present for, in order to make a quorum. We don't know how many were gathered here this night, but there's, there's enough where they would believe they would have a quorum. And so he's, he's at the home of Caiaphas. And then we see in verse 58 something interesting that we'll revisit much more next week. It says that Peter was following him at a distance. You might remember that all the disciples had fled. They all abandoned Jesus. He got arrested, and he was in control and certainly demanded that the soldiers let them go. They all fled, and they're all gone. But Peter somehow is, is following Jesus, but it says at a distance. He says, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and then going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. And so you see this convergence, this, con this conflict, if you will, between a, a, a cowardice and between commitment. Peter, the, the, the rock, right, who had, who had said, I will die for you. I will not deny you. And yet Jesus said, you will deny me. We'll talk about that next week. But here we see Peter still struggling. Maybe, maybe he was determined to, to try to show his, his loyalty and his, his faithfulness that that, that he, he's not going to leave them all the way. And he's following them just from a distance, just enough to see what's happening. Obviously, the Sanhedrin wasn't really concerned at that moment to arrest all the followers of Jesus and put them on trial. And so here is Peter, for his own sake, for his own safety, for a sense of comfort, being compelled to to learn, though, still what's going to happen to Jesus because he did love him, but he's keeping his distance from him. R.C. Sproul said something that we should all think about regarding this text. He said, when we read these texts, we're not interested only in history lessons, as important as they may be. When we read the word of God, we always should be looking for ways in which the text of Scripture applies to us today. It was and is typical of the followers of Jesus to put distance between themselves and their Lord when the moment of crisis comes. When our well-being is threatened, it's easy to retreat. And so we have to ask ourselves, had we been part of, of Jesus' band of followers when he was arrested, would we have fled? Would we have kept a, a safe distance from him? And if you're tempted in any way to think, no, I would have stood, be careful. Be careful. Peter follows at a safe distance, keeping himself 
close, but yet not too close to Jesus. Point number two, we see Jesus remaining silent amid deceit. We look at verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Now, Understand this, the trial that is happening here and all of the trials that are coming, they're all illegal. None of this is being done by the way that they were supposed to do it according to their own written rules and laws. According to Jewish law, all criminal trials must begin and end in the daylight. And so the very fact that they're gathering here probably 2 or 3 in the morning by this point gathering in the dark to condemn Jesus, it's already showing that they, they're not in it to try to have a fair trial. They're in it for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to tear Jesus down and kill him. They had no legal standing in what's going on. And that was just one of the illegalities of the trial of Jesus. According to Jewish law, the criminal cases could not be tried during Passover season. Where are they? Right in the middle of Passover. Also, according to Jewish law, only an acquittal could be issued on the day of the trial. You couldn't, you couldn't condemn a man, certainly not to death. Guilty verdicts had to wait at least one night. They had to wait 24 hours, if you will, to allow for feelings of mercy to arise in a capital case. According to Jewish law, all evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses who were separately examined and could not have contact with each other. It had to be corroborated by them. And false witnesses were punishable by death. But we're going to see nothing happens to the false witnesses, to the many false witnesses that were coming forward. They just say, oh, no, it doesn't match up. We can't use you. Also, a trial always began by bringing forth evidence for the innocence of the accused. The accused was to begin the trial with, an, with a, a, a way to defend himself with a way to stand and state the evidence in his favor before any evidence of guilt was offered. And this certainly is not what's happening here. And so the religious leaders are breaking their own rules in their eagerness just to kill him, to get rid of Jesus. They're breaking their own rules. What a travesty. What an injustice. I love how also in verse 60, though, how in verse, at the end of verse 59, how they were, they were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found what? None. They couldn't find any. It's a remarkable testimony to, to his life, to his character, his integrity, his purity, having lived such a public life. For the last three years, publicly serving and ministering for long hours in front of people, crowds, thousands and thousands of people performing such a public ministry, and they couldn't even find one false testimony against him. And so they, at last, it says two came forward in verse 61, and, and they said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And so they, they finally find two, two guys that somehow have this story that they hear, which, which, which was somewhat true, right? There's some truth there, but it's not the whole truth. They, they say, oh, I, I was there, and I heard him say that he was going to destroy the temple of God, and he's going to rebuild it in, in three days. 
these false witnesses basically charging Jesus like a modern-day bomb threat, threatening to destroy the temple. That, that's what we can get them on. And yet they miss the whole point. And Jesus could have easily, and possibly even Peter from a distance, could have stepped in and said, that's not what he meant. John tells us what he meant in chapter 2, verse 19 and through 21, where Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it's been 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But John says, but he was talking about the temple of his body. He was making a point of the fact that he would die and on the third day be raised from the dead again. And so this false testimony is in front of him, and, and what's happening? Then, and the high priest is starting to get angry and frustrated with Jesus, and he yells, tells him, have you no answer to make? You got nothing to say? And remarkably, the scripture says, but Jesus remained silent. He remained silent. Ultimately, until it was absolutely necessary in obedience for him to speak, Jesus remained silent. Why? Why? Why is he not opening his mouth to defend himself? Well, we saw last week how Jesus was fulfilling scripture. And once again, this is what he's doing. In Isaiah 53, 7, Hundreds of years before Christ comes, it was prophesied of him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What is this silence? Spurgeon says his silence was the silence of patience, not of indifference, of courage, not of cowardice. He's courageously and boldly fulfilling and obediently fulfilling the plan of God. Point number three, clarifying the claim of deity. We continue on at the second part of verse 63, and the high priest said to him, probably out of frustration, I adjure you by the living God. It's a way of saying, I am now putting you under oath. I'm demanding in the name of God, which was a big deal, this was a very rare and formal expression that would invoke the name of God in order to compel a true answer. And so this is the climax of, of the whole hearing happening right now. The high priest, in essence, demands and calls him in the name of God to answer him a question. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. You have said so. We've heard that expression before, haven't we? Just a few verses before, in, cha in chapter 26, verse 25, Judas, when Jesus had already told the disciples, one of you is going to betray me, Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? Is it I? Am I the one? And Jesus said to him the same exact phrase, you have said so. You know, Judas, that you're the one, and I know. And in essence, Jesus is answering the high priest in the same way. Deep down, you know who I am, and you hate it, and you hate it, and you don't want it, and so you're struggling and fighting against it. You've said it yourself. And then he goes on 
to offer a clarification because perhaps even the high priest was, was asking this sarcastically. Like, are, are you going to tell us if you are the Christ? The one who's standing in front of us weak? No army, no defense, just standing here looking weak in front of us? Really? You, the, the, the poor one? The one, you, tell us if you are the Christ. And Jesus, in essence, says, you know I am. You've said it. Yes, I am the Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah that you think. You thought Messiah is coming in riding on the white horse with a sword to destroy all your political enemies and to, to give you guys everything you want. And that's not why Jesus came. Jesus came for redemption of sinners. He came for their redemption. He he came for the redemption of the world. And so he clarifies who he is. I'm not this political savior riding in on my white horse to, 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 to save your kingdom. I'm building my own kingdom. And I'm doing it with love. I'm doing it with service. I'm doing it with sacrifice not with a sword. And so Jesus responds to clarify who he is and the power he actually does have. Jesus says, yes, I'm the Messiah. You've said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I love this. This is a clarification. Yes, I'm Messiah, but not the way you think. Not only am I Messiah... I am God. I'm the very Son of God. I'm the fulfillment of of Psalm 110.1, which he calls in his his response here, where, where David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, speaking of the Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And there's this understanding of though you have power over me, the only way you have power over me, Caiaphas and all y'all, is because my Father's given it to you for this moment. But there's a day coming where all of the enemies of God will be his footstool, the Messiah's footstool, where your neck will be stepped on if you don't repent. Then he, he, he also recalls Daniel chapter 7 when he talks of the Son of Man coming on the clouds. He said, Daniel 7 verse 13 and 14 speaks of the Messiah. It says in, in verse 13, I saw in the night visions Daniel prophesies, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. By the way, that was Jesus' favorite title for himself. He called himself the son of man more than anything else. Why? Because he's saying, I'm that guy. I'm the one Daniel saw and is talking about. And the son of man came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, to the Christ, to Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. See, you guys, Caiaphas, you, you want to keep it all for yourself. You want your little kingdom here in this little part of the world. I'm, I'm bigger than that. I'm, I'm building a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages will serve me. That his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so though they sat in judgment of him now, he's declaring 
his power and who he truly is. He's, he's pulling the curtain back for a moment for them to see, you're going to see one day. You're going to see, though you sit in judgment of me now, I will one day sit in judgment of you with a far more binding judgment. How powerful are his words. From now on, you will see. And they would, wouldn't they? They would see resurrection power. They would see the Holy Spirit power as he ascends to heaven and sends the Spirit. And the Spirit empowers Peter, who's following at a distance, cowardly, to boldly not care what the chief priests and Caiaphas and all those say from now on. They're going to see judgment power. They'll see it. They'll see it as, as Jerusalem itself is destroyed. They'll see the power of the Christ as he returns for final judgment. One day, one day, from now on you will see. Other translations translate that word from now on, hereafter. Hereafter. It's a great word. And I love how Spurgeon uses it. He says, hereafter, hereafter. Oh, when that hereafter comes, how overwhelming it will be to Jesus' foes. Now where is Caiaphas? Will he now adjure the Lord to speak? Now, you priests, lift up your haughty heads. Utter a sentence against him now. There sits your victim upon the clouds of heaven. Say now that he blasphemes and hold up your rent rags and condemn him again. But where is Caiaphas? He hides his guilty head. He is utterly confounded and, and he begs the mountains to fall upon him. Jesus standing in front of them, about to be condemned, is making sure they know he's in complete control. And yet, fourthly, determining what he deserves. Then the high priest, upon hearing this proclamation by Jesus, tore his robes, which is a sign of a devastation when a national tragedy would happen, the, the tearing of the robes. He tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. Now, what's blasphemy? Speaking falsely of God or against God. Saying something untrue of God. Did Jesus do that? <laughs> no, Jesus is the only one telling the truth here. He has spoken blasphemy. And, and that would have been correct except that Jesus really was who he said he was. It was no crime for the Messiah, the Son of God, to declare who he really is. But they hate it. So he tears his robes. He's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? Which, when I read that, it's kind of comical to me because they had no witnesses, right? They had no witnesses. Well, what more do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy and so he calls to all of the other leaders there in the Sanhedrin, what is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. The Son of God stands in front of them, declares who he is, and their determination of what he deserves is death. Their judgment reveals the depth of human depravity. 
that God in total perfection came to earth and he lived among men and he served and he died as a sacrifice. And this man's reply to God was they deserve death. And the truth is, it's not just the Sanhedrin. This is humanity's declaration. Apart from Christ, humanity hates God. Oh, we would never say that. Well, some will. But many, many are okay with, no, we, we, we don't hate God. Well, why do you refuse to obey him? Oh, it's, it's just because it's not that big a deal. Every sin is deserving of death. That's what scripture tells us. The wages of sin is death. And their judgment of the only one who never sinned is he deserves death. The judge, the judge of the universe judged by sinners. The high priest condemning the great high priest. Certainly, Jesus did not deserve death. I do. You do. Every sinner does. And yet, what is Jesus doing? He's drinking the cup. He will wear my filthy robe. And he'll put his arms through both sleeves. And he'll wear it totally. They determine he deserves death. And it's carried on even further in point five, spitting in his face. Verse 67, then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Mocking him, insulting him. I don't know if there is more of an insult that can happen than for someone to spit in the face of another. Even to this day, right, we've. That's a massive insult. And the Messiah, the Son of God, is standing and they're spitting in his face. Once again, Scripture is fulfilled. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. They spit on him. They hit him with their fists. They slapped him with their open hands. And it's easy to think that they did this because they didn't know who he was. And, and that's true probably in one sense because they wouldn't admit to themselves that he was indeed the Messiah of God. And yet in another sense, it's not true at all. 
because by nature man is an enemy of God. Romans 5 teaches us that. Colossians 1 teaches us that. And for a long time, man had waited to, to literally hit and slap and spit in the face of God. Spurgeon commented on this, Be astonished, O heavens, and be horribly afraid. His face is the light of the universe. His person is the glory of heaven. And they began to spit on him. Alas, my God, that man should be so base. Men continue to spit in the face of Jesus. They deny his deity, a spit in his face. They, they, they reject his gospel, a spit in his face. They prefer their own righteousness, a spit in his face. They turn away from him, a spit in his face. It's incredible to me that the immediate judgment of God did not rain down from heaven that that legion of angels didn't spring to the defense of Jesus here. It shows us the amazing patience of God, the, the forbearance towards sin and sinners that God has, the amazing, staggering, breathtaking riches of his mercy towards us. How patient he is to endure. As we come... To a close, I want to make a few points of application. And the first and greatest is this, that all of this was necessary. This trial, this mockery, this sham, all of this necessary all the way up to the cross so that when you stand at your trial, the trial, when you stand before the judge of the universe, you would have an advocate. Because when we stand before God, every single one of us sinners, we will have no answer for our, in and of ourselves. There is no, I, I did this for you, God. I did that for you, God. When I was, I was good here and I was good there, and there is none of that. There is only, I plead, the blood of Jesus Christ. I plead the mercy of my Savior. He stood in my place condemned. It should have been me receiving the punishment, the wrath from the Father. I deserve that. And he poured it out on his own son on the cross for me as my substitute. That's my only defense. I have no other. And praise God, in his mercy and in his grace, Christ himself will stand as our advocate, claiming us for his own. Yes, yes, that sinner is mine. He's mine. I saved him. I took his sin. I took her sin. He's mine. They're mine. They belong to me, Father. They're one of yours. They're in the family. All of this is ultimately not about injustice that Jesus is going through, but the redemption of what Jesus is accomplishing. And glory of glories, if you trust alone in Jesus Christ, his perfect work, his perfect sacrifice for a sinner like yourself, if you trust him alone to cover your sins, to forgive you of your sins, that he has paid for your sins, you are saved. 
You are God's. And then let's take it one more step further in application. I hope every single one of us has come to that point where you turn from your sin and you trust in Christ alone. There's no works good enough. You have not one work you can do for God to earn a relationship with him. You alone have Christ, and he's all you need, and he's all you'll ever want. Trust him. I call upon every single one of us to trust him today, to look to him today, to come to him today. He's a merciful Savior. He's a loving Savior. He's a kind Savior. He will welcome you in, and he will forgive every single one of your sins. Once we come to faith in Christ, then what? Are we done? We have a whole life to live. And we spend the rest of our lives becoming who we already are. Every day being conformed to the image of Christ a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And so I want to ask you, the, those that were standing in condemnation of Jesus determined what he deserves. What does he deserve? He deserves death. I want to ask you, what does Jesus deserve? What does he deserve? Christian, what does he deserve? And do you live your life in such a way that displays that what you're thinking right now he deserves, he actually deserves? Or do you follow him at a distance? You know, there's so many Christians that that could be our story. I don't want to get too close to him because... It's not that comfortable. What if he asks something of me that I don't really want to do? Or what if I'm laughed at and mocked, made fun of? And so you have a lot of Christians out there in the world today trying to be cool, trying to get the world to like us by being like, like the world, trying to make them liking us, the, the primary thing in our life. But the truth is, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus in scriptures. Jesus disrupts. Jesus is hated. And let me just be blunt with you, Christian. If you're a Christian, you're going to be hated. When you stand for truth and righteousness, when you preach and tell people of Christ, they're not going to like it a lot of times. J.C. Ryle applies this text this way. He says, let it never surprise us if we have to endure mockery and ridicule and false reports because we belong to Christ. The disciple is not greater than his master nor the servant than his Lord. If lies and insults were heaped upon our Savior, we need not wonder if the same weapons are constantly used against his people. It's one of Satan's great devices to blacken the character of godly men and bring them into contempt. If we are ever called upon to suffer in this way, let us bear it patiently. We drink the same cup that was drunk by our beloved Lord, but there is one great difference. At the worst, we only drink a few bitter drops. He drank the cup to the very dregs. Don't follow him at a distance. Cling to him closely. Do we pass judgment on him? 
Do we in our own minds or by the way we live our lives somehow determine what he deserves and what he's worth? And when he calls us to obedience in a particular area, we refuse that because, well, it's not worth it. Do we spit in his face? You say, I would never do that, but yet we spit. uh, Every sin, friends, is a spit in the face of Christ. Every sin, every one of my sins. Jesus deserves that we walk in truth. He deserves that we worship him in spirit and in truth. He deserves that we walk and live in reality, that we love truth, that we live in light of the truth. And listen, that's quite difficult in a world that hates truth, isn't it? It's hard. Our crazy world hates truth and loves comfort. And Jesus certainly deserves that his people would cling to him as the truth and live for him. We look at the challenges we face in our day. One of the great enemies of our day is this relativism that we face, subjectivism, right, the the, the ruling of feelings. It rules the day, folks. Christians are dropping like flies to it. The idea that the world of facts is not the controlling reality. Reality is optional. We've been taught over and over again that, that love is what you feel. And you can love any way you want. Love is love, and so it's all good. And so love however you want. But listen, when the feeling wanes or goes away, as, as the theory goes, so has the love. And this has been the source of, of untold misery in the world today. And according to all of the ethical systems of our day, injustice then is defined by whether or not it hurts someone's feelings. It's the great sin of the day. But in the biblical framework, when you begin to understand who Jesus is, what he taught, what the scriptures teach, when your feelings start to wander off, Christians, I'm talking to you, when your feelings start to to go awry and and go down a road that, that isn't a good road, love, love would would look at you like a good mom or a good dad would, where, you know, where they get that look in their eye, there's that gleam in the eye, and they say, get back here. Get back here. Don't you wander off. That's love. In a biblical framework, your, your feelings are like a, like a kindergarten teacher who takes her whole class downtown to the Balboa Park Art Museum. And because she loves them, every one of them is on this neon-colored leash. (laughs) And she's hanging on to them all. (laughs) You see, Jesus goes to the cross in, in love. And it's a biblical love. It's a covenant love. And we're to follow in his footsteps. That's what we're called to. And Jesus deserves that we live in the nature of such love with, with a covenant commitment. And this applies across the board, all of life, marriage, family, membership in the church, all of life. It's been said that first, a Puritan said this about marriage. First he chooses love, and then he loves his choice. And so it's got to get back to the foundations of what that looks like and means. I know those of us that have lived our lives here in California, I've lived my whole life here, but I have used to visit the Midwest quite oft- often. And 
I saw something when I went there I had never seen before in my life. It's called a basement. Anybody ever seen a basement? A couple of us. Really? Nobody else has seen a basement? Okay, a few. All right. All right. It's getting hot. All right. I'm almost done. What I've learned is, or what I heard at least, is in the Midwest they have a lot of tornadoes at certain parts of the country. And when there's a tornado, you don't go to the couch. You, you, you go to the basement. And when you go down to the basement, what do you see? You see lots of cold, let me call it covenant concrete. Lots of cold concrete. It's a bunch of unsentimental, not very pretty concrete. And it's kind of boring. And it's kind of cold. And it's not very well decorated. And then you go up to the living room. And you see some beautiful curtains and some artwork on the walls and warm colors painted on the walls and, and, and cushions on the sofas and pillows and carpet and all these things that make us comfortable, and that's where you live. That's what makes living there enjoyable. But it cannot be the foundation of the house. Because you can roll up all the carpet and take all the cushions and stack them on each other and then take the curtains down and throw them on top of that and then, then try to build a, a stud wall and attach it to all of that. It's coming down. We've got to get a hold of these things we call feelings. And you say, well, you know, we, 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 we've come so far even to describe people who are self-controlled, which is a fruit of the Spirit, as unemotional. Well, you don't have to deal with emotions like I do. No, it, it, it's kind of like, kind of like, uh, kind of like children. <laughs> Imagine if you discipline your emotions the same way that some people discipline their kids. And some people are so off on on this that they've come to believe that if if someone's kids are un are, are are not unruly, crazy hellions running around, that must mean they don't even have kids. Oh, how do you? No, they have kids, but their kids behave. They obey. They've been trained. Christians, what does Jesus deserve? This is what I'm trying to get across. He deserves our growth in him, our building upon the covenant concrete foundation, a life so when the storms come, it's not shaken. And let me tell you, the storms are going to continue to come. Our culture, our society is not going to sit idly by while we just, you know, bask in the comfort of the, of the cushions. Truth doesn't change. Covenant vows don't change. Covenant oaths don't move. These things are the foundations. Your feelings move. Your sentiments fluctuate and move. And what happens if you make them the foundation? I think Jesus told us that in Matthew 7. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on, on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. 
What does Jesus deserve, Christian? He deserves our lives lived in joyful obedience to him. No matter how you feel today, he deserves that. Because we're forgiven by God through Christ, it is actually possible to be exhorted to follow him, to imitate him, to be like him, and we're to imitate the whole process. Jesus, according to Hebrews 12, did what he did for the joy that was set before him. And and because of his obedience, that true joy is a possibility. But listen, Jesus, we saw this a few weeks ago, he did not go to the cross on an emotional high, did he? The greatest act of love that was ever offered up to God was the death of Christ on the cross. And Jesus struggled and wanted out in his feelings, but his house wasn't built on the cushions. And because of that, we're saved. We're saved. His love for you had such a sure foundation. I mean, what would have happened to you and me if in the garden Christ would have obeyed his feelings instead of his father? So my call What does Jesus deserve? He deserves for his people to put on Christ. That's the way Romans 13 talks of it and Galatians 3. Put on your, your, your coat. Put on your robe, your Jesus robe, and make sure that you put your arms through both sleeves, not halfway on. He certainly deserves that, doesn't he? For he is worthy.